Hi, I'm Carla Marie Sweet, and you are listening to the Playmakers Podcast, a new podcast by Box of Tricks Theatre Company that is all about platforming creative conversations with theatre makers from all parts of the industry. This episode's guest is the brilliant Billy Collins. Billy is a writer and dramaturg from the Wirral, based in Manchester. She writes for stage, screen and audio and her debut play Too Much World at Once is touring nationally throughout spring 2023 with Box of Tricks and has been published by Nick Hearn Books. Billy also has projects in development with Thick Skin Theatre and Toasty Animation, was shortlisted for the 2021 Papatango Prize and selected for the 2022 BBC Writers Room Northern Voices Scheme. Billy also works as a script reader for organisations across stage and screen and is Box of Tricks' literary associate. I got Billy on the podcast to talk about her play Too Much World at Once and her writing journey so far. As with all episodes of the Playmakers podcast, this conversation is pretty raw, uncut and unfiltered. So you may hear the odd swear word that hasn't been beeped and some discussions around sensitive topics. Okay, without further ado, here's Billy Collins. I started doing spoken word when I was a teenager. Did you? Um, I did. I went to see Kay Tempest uh. Uh, do Brand New Ancients and it sort of blew my tiny mind. So I was trying to find like um, something that I, I wanted to do that as well. Yeah. And I started going to the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool had a night called A Lovely Word that was hosted by Paddy Hughes. None other than. Oh, very so, own. I know. When I was like 16, maybe younger, I used to go um, and do spoken word poems at the Everyman in the Bistro. And I think what I, I realised that what I liked about it was all of the poems that I was doing were stories. They were all narratives. They all had characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked making people laugh. Um, I wasn't so hot on like actually um, performing myself. I used to get like so nervous. Um, so I, I was sort of yeah into like storytelling for a live audience and for hearing them react to it and then mm. I started going to um, the Young Writers Group at the Royal Exchange Theatre and that's kind of like what sort of locked me in because then they were giving us loads of plays to read um, met all sorts of like brilliant um, playwrights people like we had like uh, Bryony Lavery came in um, Alison McDowell came in and obviously Suze at the Royal Exchange as well was just like really inspiring so that's kind of when it became like Theatre, like I've always written stuff, like since mm. I was a kid I used to write um, like stories and, and that kind of thing, I used to like hand in, I was like, I was a, a massive geek and like a huge swat and I used to just hand in pages and pages and pages of stuff that teachers just didn't ask for, um, which used to really <laughs> piss them off because they'd be like, I just have to mark this now and I'd be like, well I've written you like 20 pages, what's wrong with that? Um, so yeah, it was kind of it was channeling, channeling into something that felt... Um, it's just exciting, I yeah. think, yeah. The, and it's the same stuff that everyone always says about it being in a room. I think that was just, yeah. Because we used to go to the theatre when I was little. Um, what was, was the first play you ever saw, do you remember? The first one that I remember seeing, like, mm. I think I must have gone to, like, Panto and stuff a little bit, but I remember we went to, it was Christmas, and I think we had some, like, family friends visiting, um, and we wanted to kind of do something with them. We went to see a play called The Flint Street Nativity mm. at the Playhouse Theatre in Liverpool, and... It was like, it was a comedy about a school nativity and it, I was like so impressed that all of the adults were playing children. I was like, this is the best thing, this is hilarious, <laughs> like no one else has ever done this before, it's amazing. <laughs> and um, I just remember there was a bit where they were singing Silent Night, they're all singing really badly. 
Um, and I don't think I'd ever find anything quite as funny. And I remember our family friends were like, yeah, that was fine. I was like, what do you mean? That was like high art. That was like, the best thing I've seen in my life. Um, so again, I think often it has been linked to like humour for me. I think always like I, I love, um, yeah, I always, I still put jokes in everything just to make sure that people are okay. <laughs> sort of, I use it as a bit of a barometer. I'm like, are they liking it? Okay, they've got to get the laugh. That's all right then. Um, yeah, so I think that was the first, that's the first one I remember seeing. We, we used to go to sort of um, the, the Grosvenor Park Open Air Theatre, so in Chester they mm. used to have like an open air theatre. Um, I think they still have it Chester. actually. They still have it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I used to go and see stuff there, but um, yeah. <laughs> and when did you start kind of figuring out what sort of stuff you wanted to write for stage? Um, I think only probably more recently, to be honest. Like wow. I, I've been writing plays, like say, since I was a teenager, mm. um, and I think you do have to kind of write quite a few really bad ones and continue to write bad ones, yeah. <laughs> and they get better, obviously, as like as you redraft and stuff like that. But I think there was sort of a process where, like at the exchange, they gave us loads of plays to read. So it's sort of like, oh, maybe I'll try and write something that's a bit like that. And I was kind of like trying to write a bit like Alison McDowell or trying to write a bit like Bryony Lavery or, or um, Carol Churchill or whoever, and was just sort of mimicking it because I didn't really know what, what your was, voice was, yeah, what yeah. I wanted that to be. Um, and I think it was actually through, so I did the Playbox Theme of Box Tricks in 2019. Yeah. And that was, I think, the first time where I was, I felt more like this was coming from me and felt like, um, a bit more confident in in that that was sort of the world and the sorts of people that I was interested mm. in because I'd always I'd love writing dialogue dialogue is like my kind of absolute jam like I love speech rhythms I like um, I love little turns of phrase that people use specifically in families as well I've always kind of been interested in um, family dynamics and how people who really really love each other kind of but also not don't often ask, uh, act in each other's best interests because of that mm. um, how they communicate or how they don't communicate so that's always something that kind of comes up or maybe think um, they're asking e they're acting in each other's best interests but what they think is somebody's best interest isn't necessarily what that person thinks yeah, yeah, is yeah. their best interest exactly. and then the weight of kind of um feeling and experience that you have with someone who's known you your entire life as well i think is often really interesting mm. um, do you come from a big family I, yes, yeah, I'd say pretty, I mean, like, my immediate family, it's mm. me, my parents, my brother, um, and we're very kind of tight-knit, mm. um, some would say too tight-knit, you know, it's like, <laughs> we overshare, like, when people say they don't talk to their parents, um, obviously there's all sorts of reasons that might be, but sometimes when people are just like, yeah, we just don't really have much in common, I'm like, what, what do you mean, I talk to my parents, like, every day, which is wow. a bit excessive, um, sometimes they're like, stop calling me, <laughs> like, leave me alone, like, loads and stuff, um, <laughs> you've flown yeah, the nest, we have our lives, We've back gotten now. rid of you. Shut up. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm a brother as well. Like I'm yeah. really close to my brother, and then my um, grandparents and my dad's one of um, four, so um, mm. I have quite a lot of cousins and um, yeah. It's yeah. Sort of family's always. Classic. It's sort of interesting, isn't it, to think about the shift in dynamic when there's more or less siblings, mm. and yeah, how that affects things. Because my dad's one of eighteen. I think, yeah, all half-siblings and foster-siblings and adoptive siblings and, yeah, um, and then my mum's one of two yeah, yeah and yeah. I'm one of two and yeah. it's, yeah, it's so interesting to kind of watch. Are you the older or the younger? The, the older. Okay. Yeah, That's a big thing by five well. and a half like, years. I'm, I'm the younger, but I definitely feel like the older. No shade to my brother, like, I love my brother a lot, but that's What's, what's the age gap? It's only uh, two, two or three years, depends on mm. what time of year we're at. Um, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I sort of have felt the age gap close the more we've 
grown up and definitely when I was younger it felt like he was so much younger than me <laughs> and I definitely had the propensity to want to mother him all the time and he did not like that because he already had a mum <laughs> who was doing a pretty good job. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, as we kind of got older, he sort of realised that I was looking out for him mm. and I sort of learned when to sort of back off a bit. Yeah. And what's interesting is that just because of our very different personalities and the fact that, you know, he's the, he's the sort of person who's got his freelance tax return done by like June, <laughs> whereas I'm like there on the 31st of January, <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he, there's definitely, he parents me a little bit sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I think. He's been teaching me like how to drive and... You know, even just like the process of buying a car and doing insurance and all those kind of things that I'm just like, oh God, this doesn't interest me at all. I just want to have the car and I want to drive the car. But he's very, yeah, yeah. So there's the, you know, you can't, there's that trade-off, isn't there, on, on both sides, that exchange that you get through siblings, which I guess is what kind of comes so through your work. And I think as well, like he, my brother's a very big personality. Like I, I love him to bits. He's like... Um, He's very chatty. Like, he would just talk to everyone. Like, when we were kids, he would, oh. like, just supermarket cashiers. You would be there for, like, 20 minutes because my brother's asking them how their days went. And they're, like, there's a queue forming. <laughs> Callum, will you shut up? Your brother's called Callum? Yeah. My brother's called Callum. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. But it just, it just meant that because he's very, um, yeah, front-footed and outgoing. Yeah. It, there was always a sort of element of, like, we didn't, we went to se- different secondary schools, but we were at the same primary school for a bit. Yeah. And I'd kind of, I'd move up and they'd be like, oh, like, Callum's. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's my brother. Uh-huh. Like, you may have met him and you probably love him. I'm here to disappoint you. Um, so I think, I think maybe that there was always a little bit of or maybe a you're of just chip on the shoulder about it as well. You're kind of the yin to his yang and vice yeah. versa. And I think having I think that balance so. is nice, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, we complement each other. <laughs> so let's talk a bit more about where your work was when you first started out and the kind of characters that you were writing and where the inspiration from, for them came from. And then where your work is now in terms of the sort of stories you're telling and the characters you're writing. Yeah, I think there's a lot of continuity between like when I, when I started, right, which, you know, isn't that, that long ago. Mm. Um, and what I write now, like I've, I'm, as I say, family dynamics are always in there. And there's they've been in there from the start. Pretty much, yeah. There's always kind of siblings or parents or conflicts within mm. those, those units. Um, and then I usually write about young people and teenagers as mm-hmm. well that's always been I don't know if that's just I think initially because like I was a teenager yeah. and that's sort of what I knew um but increasingly I, th- I think like now that it's become a more like intentional decision to, mm. to write about young people in that way I think it's it's kind of come from like being interested in, in that like transitional period from mm. like when you're not quite a child but you're not quite an adult and how do you sort of move through the world and find your place in it I find really interesting coming of age stories have been a pretty sort of um continuous thing but I think like and what 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 kind of responsibility do you feel to the young people that you are representing or the young people that you are speaking to through your work oh that's a hard question I feel because I do I do I do find it really interesting when people are like yeah like writing about young people or for young people is my thing and then navigating that thing what does that actually mean in terms of your relationships to those characters and to your audiences I think I feel very protective Mm. of some of them I remember there was a kind of there's a moment in um, too much well at once um, where one of the characters is 14 talks quite um, 
articulately and explicitly about how he sees himself in the future and it's a very like hopeful image mm. and I was very conscious about putting that in there um, thinking about being like a queer teenager myself mm. and being like I want to show a character who is sure of themselves at that age and who is confident that things will turn out all right mm. um, so that felt like I don't know if it, I, I don't I don't know how much I, f I sort of think about like a kind of pressure of responsibility that I need to do something right more that like there is a kind of connection that I'd like to make mm. with people and, and I think especially writing like young queer people I sort of feel like I want people to feel seen and stuff and there's there's certain times when you kind of weigh that up a little bit I'm working on something else at the moment where there's um teenagers using quite um well like homophobic language explicit like um slurs and things like that which I sort of wrestled with a little bit because I was kind of like I don't know how productive it is all the time to represent that mm. but then I kind of was just saying to you before like I've had experiences recently where I've seen young people using that language yeah and I it, it frightens me and I think well that, that young people are still doing that yeah. um because yeah. you know it was going around when I was at school which isn't that long ago but I, I like to think that you know teenagers wow. today are far more um, yeah. clued up and, and also just like have so much more vocabulary around it so I think it's in putting that on stage, I was kind of like, okay, how do I break this apart or challenge it and confront it and point it out for what it is? Mm. Um, so maybe there is a, an element of responsibility in there, but right. I also just, yeah, I think the, I didn't see a lot of um, people like me on stage and screen when I was younger. Um, like all the kind of, I watched a lot of TV and I didn't grow up in a place where there was like a big kind of queer community. So yeah. a lot of the like, queer people, um, like gay women and things like that, that I was seeing were much older than me if they were on TV at all. It was just like, you know, super Same. and clever yeah. thing. Like that was kind of it. And I was like, I don't really feel like I'm seeing myself here. So I think there's a little bit of trying to adjust that balance a little bit and show um, young queer people as, as like being young and queer. Like it's yeah. kind of, you go into schools now and it's like, they have so many different words for so many different things. And they're so kind of, you know, it doesn't matter if they change their mind, they know that there's space to be fluid and space to, to explore and experiment mm. things in a way that, even when I was at school, I don't think there was as much. No. Um, and so. there's, a, there's a much broader understanding of what queer can be and what queer can look like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, and I spent my teenage years growing up in the American South, mm. where there really was zero representation. And if you were... If you even suspected you might be gay, it's probably a good idea to hide that. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people didn't even just, didn't even question it, yeah, you know? Yeah. Didn't even question it because, oh God, yeah, no, no, that's too scary. And I don't think it was until I saw Sugar Rush when I came back mm. to the UK when I was like 18 <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, so you can be gay and femme. Yeah, these things exist. This exists. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And then yeah. what does that mean? And yeah, and that was like crucial for yeah. me. I think I also realised like, who I was talking to about the other day, I was having a conversation with another writer about like, the, I've written a lot of teenage boys in my mm. time and I'm not a teenage boy. Um, but I, I was thinking about it, I was like, where does that come from? And I don't want to like interrogate it too much because it starts to feel a bit weird. Um, but that like, yeah, the characters that I did see on the screen that mm. I could relate to were these like geeky boys who did who had like fancied girls and didn't know what to do about it. So I was suddenly yeah. there like the only like characters that were around who looked a bit like me and acted a bit like me were all teenage boys. Yeah. So suddenly that's kind of I think there was a level of empathy. 
Um, so does that character then in Too Much World at Once, are they sort of a... Are they sort of a representation of who you were at 14 years old? Um, I think there's elements of me in there. Mm. There's certainly a geekiness and a pretentiousness and <laughs> kind of um, indiscriminate kind of consumption of all sorts of nonsense. Like there's a character that kind of will quote Shakespeare and then quote Corrie in the next breath. Like it's kind of yes. like just taking everything. Um, <laughs> I love but that. I think uh, he's kind of a bit of a mishmash of a lot of different people that I've met and that I've loved and people that like I've, I feel... Yeah, people that I met at university as well. Um, when I started seeing boys who painted their nails, that didn't happen in, in kind of on my school bus. And uh, suddenly I was like, oh, you're really sort of just owning <laughs> yourself. It's amazing. Um, yeah, so a bit of a mix of people. But I think I think what I love about writing for theatre as well is the, the chance to sort of find find something that you relate to in all of the characters, regardless of how similar or, or dissimilar mm-hmm. they are to you in kind of reality. Um, I think that's it's a really exciting exercise I think to be like okay how do I relate to this person what what is the shared experience that I have with this person or the shared feeling um yeah <laughs> so in terms of subject matter then what what inspires you um and, and how do those topics end up in your work do you have a specific lens through which you like to see things or um I think I mean too much all at once like I I I've sort of said this a lot, but I didn't start out wanting to write about climate crisis. Like mm. it was, it came out through the research that initially I was like, I just really struck by this image of a boy turning into a bird, and I was really interested in like writing something that was kind of theatrical and magical and had a real sort of um, mythic element to it. Because um, I just, I, I like a good story. Like I, like, you know, love like, a good you know what I mean? like, It's a good story. <laughs> it's just a good story. Um, and then like through that the the research around climate crisis came out and then i read and i think with with um when you're researching a particular topic as well it's like sort of fiction and poetry as much as anything else can also be researched and seeing how other people have tackled that and that just sort of blew up a whole um world of of interesting things for me there's a really great uh, collection of essays um called strangers Essays on the non-human, I think, by uh, Rebecca Tomas. That mm-hmm. um, it's just a fascinating um, collection of essays about our relationship with the non-human and the different ways of thinking that are opened up to us if we kind of engage with it. Um, and that I think has hugely sort of informed the kind of stories that I'm interested in telling and the worlds that I'm interested in telling. But they they sort of come from all sorts of different places. And and I mean, yeah, at the moment there's there's a lot to do with nature and. and um, climate and I, I like to sort of look around and see what's um, what's in front of me as well a little bit. Oh. I think uh, yeah, I'm working on a radio play at the moment that I read. There's a um, the town I went to school in. There's a load of uh, memorial benches mm-hmm. along the promenade, and um, the council are currently well. I think they might have done it now. Are phoning up the people whose family, the people who are family of the yeah, memorial yeah. benches, uh, and. Uh, asking what they'd like to do with them because they're building flood defence because in how many years, 30 years, they're going, oh, wow. the, the town will be beneath the annual flood level. Whoa. So they're having to remove those benches. And um, I just saw that like local news and it was immediately like, that's yeah. a really fascinating um, kind of intersection of lots of different things. Like that's about family, it's about grief, it's about nature and climate again um, and about how a, a town is changing and adapting to, yeah. to its circumstances. So. Stuff like that, like, I, I kind of, I think I, I look for those points where, like, lots of, where big things come out through um, small things. And I yeah. think something that I sort of landed on is I like, I like 
the meeting of the everyday and the extraordinary. Mm. Like I, I like sort of plays where you kind of feel like you've found your feet and then you're like, oh, I've stood on the ceiling. Like what's this? What's going on? It's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's something really interesting in that idea about the uh, the memorial benches. I remember walking along West Shore with my family. I think it might have been in lockdown actually, and um, all along. Uh, the side of the beach are these memorial benches and just because of of the community in North Wales and it's certainly been definitely where we live a bit of bit of a more sort of aging population and imagining how they would react to that phone call and how it's it's there's something about grief in there as well isn't there of how do you say goodbye to something that is a monument to the past mm. in order to deal with the inevitable future that is encroaching upon us? And the way that it's all kind of completely rooted in place as well, the decision yes. to memorialise in a specific location. Like so often those plaques are saying things about like who loved this place or who loved this view or who walked yeah. their dog here, that kind of thing. And then that, that how we adapt to changing places as mm. well. Like the, the, the locations that we become used to are always shifting in some way and I, I find that really fascinating um yeah I could ramble especially <laughs> could when ramble. they are such beautiful exactly, locations yeah. I and mean I mean like yeah I grew up in a place that everyone's always like it's really pretty and it often yeah. gets kind of described as whereabouts like, in the world did you grow I up I grew up in Heswall so okay. like on the the North Wales side so yeah like the flash bit uh posh scouse yeah um <laughs> as, it, as it is described um but it, it's a stunning and again like I, I didn't appreciate it like as a teenager I just was bored um, yeah, and was like, there's not. This isn't. I don't see people like me around here. There's nothing mm. to do. But I would spend hours just like walking. I used to just go walking um, yeah. <clears throat> along the beach and along the cliffs and through the woods and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's only now that I'm starting to think about the actual geography and landscape of that yeah. place. And it's really interesting. So it <laughs> is. Know, I didn't it give is. it enough credit. And I've just written something for telly set in North Wales, and it's it's funny, isn't it? Because when you go there when you're a kid or when you're you're there when you're a kid you you kind of don't appreciate it as much for a variety of reasons you know um but then being able to go back as an adult and my parents have lived back there for 12 years now and so it is like where my family home is and and I go back and I'm like god it's gorgeous here isn't it and it's such a great place to be when you're trying to escape from the city for a bit for sure for sure would you say a strong sense of place is something that kind of filters through all of your work whatever you're writing I think it's become more of a thing it's again it's something that's become intentional like mm. it's like we, it's interesting so we're talking about too much world at once and it's like it's not set in a like one half of it is set in a specific place mm. uh, a place that I've never been to that's an island in the South Atlantic um, but like the kind of main domestic storyline it's not specified exactly where it is yeah we just know that it's um quite a rural setting we know that there's water nearby this kind of stuff and um i think elements of where i grew up definitely bled into it um but even then i think it does have a sense of place even if it's not a, a real a one specific that we place recognize. Yeah. Um, whereas other stuff that i'm writing now i do i'm much more um deliberate about where i set things mm. and thinking about um, yeah, like this radio play is, is set specifically on the world um, and thinking about the language and the just the stuff that I remember that it's really nice to kind of revisit like 
the the sort of landmarks like oh. even like in terms of memory like I was thinking about there's a there's a um, off license where all the girls at my school used to go and get their brows threaded they had a back room and they <laughs> thread your brows for I haven't got brows to thread in the first place um, <laughs> so I never took but I just remember this little like entourage of people if I had eyebrows or a fiver I'd be there if I had eyebrows at the time I would have gotten threaded for five pounds um, it wasn't my crowd but you know but again like things like that those yeah. little details you really associate with places that you kind of um that bring them to life I think and give and give them I think when like I read a lot of plays as well and you can really tell when someone's thought about location mm. and has been specific about it because sometimes you read something like this could be anywhere and I, I don't feel like um it's rooted or that it's breathing mm. in that way mm. um which is yeah for me it's just quite like a, a fundamental Thing now I'm like where, where are we <laughs> yeah and how does that affect the story yeah. I'm writing a novel right now and some of it's set in LA but some of it's set in Georgia very close to where I grew up in Georgia and really kind of like picking apart how the culture of that place affects the story and the events and how people behave and how that leads to further events and you know, what is kind of woven into the wallpaper of, of this environment mm -hmm. and, you know, what's the weather like and what are they eating and where are they shopping and, yeah, like, what are, what are their hobbies and how are their hobbies dependent on the place that, that we're setting this in and it's it's such an interesting thing to think about. as well, I think, like, there's a real joy in seeing something that you recognise and that you're familiar with. Mm. I think there's, like, you know, there's um, artists like uh, Bill Ryder-Jones who is from... I don't know if he's from, I think he's from the world originally, um, but he's got songs that reference places that I know. And there's, oh. uh, you just get a kick out of it. Like, yeah. you just sit there, oh, like, yeah, no, I know that place. I know that, like, train station that you're referring to. I, I understand what you mean. And I think um, some places, some audiences don't get that very much. No. And I think it's um, a That's shame. That's very true. Yeah, it's a shame yeah. that I'm like, you, you have a shared experience. And yeah. even, and I think as well, like, people will always argue, like, it doesn't, it might not translate to a place. And mm. I was working on um, developing an uh, animated um, show that was set in Liverpool. Um, and a lot of feedback we got was like, oh, how will this translate kind of internationally? And um, will people understand accents and stuff like that? And it's kind of like, <laughs> I was like, you know. Trust your audience. Yeah, maybe? if kids understand Pingu, like they can yeah. understand Scouser, like it's all right. Um, but also that like, you know, places, there will always be equivalents. There will always be like, That's you know, right. you might be in a different country, but that's, that country will have its Liverpool, it will have its kind totally. of dark city, it will have yeah. its like slightly more like underdog cities or Yeah. Um, and those underdog yeah. cities and places should have their stories told, I think. Yeah. I wrote a play for the Royal Exchange um that was on last year called Cheatham Hill yeah. and about Cheatham Hill and we staged it in Cheatham Hill. Um where we are now as well, <laughs> funnily enough, where this podcast is, is recording from today. And it was it was really nice kind of the process of making that play because my experience of Cheatham Hill had really only been up to the age of about 12 before we emigrated to the States and then moving back about four and a half years ago and kind of being in and around Cheatham Hill and kind of that experience and so having the opportunity to then sort of go into the community and speak to pe people that have lived in, lived in Cheatham Hill and worked in Cheatham Hill their entire lives and people from all different cultures and you know, parts of Cheatham Hill and yeah, it was it was such an amazing process and then to kind of be 
in the in the den where we staged it and people from Cheatham Hill afterwards you know we did a Q&A and they were talking to us about you know sharing their memories of things that we'd explored through the play and it's just it's just so special isn't it yeah, when yeah. that when you get to do that yeah it's really exciting mm. um, and again like it's one of the reasons why theatre isn't it is that you, yeah. you can reach people and feel and meet those people yeah. immediately and yeah, kind of yeah. see their reaction to things and I hear a lot of writers kind of talking about how like a sense of place adds texture but mm. I I don't think it, I think it's so much more than that mm. isn't it and I almost think <laughs> you should start with that sense of place yeah. because it's not just texture it's not just window dressing it's it's really deep at the core of what a lot it of these stories are about it, it shapes people and, it, and their yeah as I say like I'm always interested in how places change mm. um, I think it's I think there's so much that can um, shift in such a short space of time and Very especially true. at the moment and I think that's what then allows something to resonate on a um, more universal level or, or tackle kind of bigger questions or themes outside of just you know your characters and what they're facing because suddenly you know, again like there's something I've talked a lot about in relation to too much more than once but like everywhere is affected by climate crisis yes like it's not an over there problem like the, mm. the, you will be able to find ways that it is influencing whether that is you know everyone kind of so everyone was always talking about how the, the birds started singing again during lockdown i think again oh, you just yeah. have to pay attention to the environment to recognize the ways in which it is changed by us yeah um, things like you know <laughs> even the pollen bomb yeah. and the fact you know everybody getting really bad hay fever all at the same time because all the flowers are now blooming at the same yeah. time because yeah. there's no proper seasons anymore mm. and that's down to climate change you know hail in april like yeah, it's <laughs> like the writing's on the wall guys it's all pretty clear there's <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't like thinking about it too much. <laughs> what other sort of big themes and big questions are you keen to explore through your writing? Maybe you already have started to explore them, or maybe they're things that you want to explore in the future. I think something that I've sort of um, shied away of, shied, how do I say words, shied away <laughs> from a little bit, um, was more my experience of queerness mm-hmm. from like of um, being female I suppose or, or um, uh, yeah and and because I think I've written a lot of uh, young gay men again mm-hmm. because there's there's a lot of that out there in terms of theatre and TV um, but I don't know I think sometimes we can sort of um, feel a little bit hesitant maybe when it's something that's more personal mm-hmm. um, and, I, and, and yeah I don't, I don't know if it's something like I'm, I'm this Another play that I'm working on at the moment is specifically about uh, two teenage lesbians, um, and I, it feels harder for some reason. I feel like there's kind of, I think that's when I start to feel more of a weight of responsibility when it's something that I'm like, oh, I feel suddenly like I'm having to say something about something that's happened to me or, or, mm. or that other people, um, or, or you know, someone who might share that experience and be like, well, that didn't happen like me to that that didn't happen to me like that yeah um, or ever so but nothing happens to anyone exactly, the same way exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah and I think but I think when it when it feels like there's a kind of you know if I'm making a decision to okay I'm going to write something about lesbians mm. now <laughs> or for the lesbians suddenly it feels like more of a more of a thing um but I think there are there are certainly aspects of of that experience which aren't um addressed very much uh on stage or, or on screen um yeah. other things and I I don't know like I, I always feel like there's kind of these big questions that sort of appear through I, I don't I, I don't know like there's there's stuff that kind of comes out of of the research and, and just out of out of the blue really like there's uh, something I'm working on with thick skin 
uh, at the moment that's about consumerism and they kind of came to me like we want to do something and we think it's potentially about consumerism um, and I was like okay that's quite big that's, yeah. that's enormous um, <laughs> shall we be more and, specific yeah, what was, part of consumerism exactly, that, that, was the, that was the joy of kind of discovering that with them and by consumerism do you mean capitalism yeah so kind of all of these things like oh, pulled boy. into one and talking wow. about stuff mainly okay. was the thing that I landed on that I was then you know hadn't I suppose what I'm saying is I don't always sort of consciously know, like, I, I've got this question that I want to ask. I sort of discover it through the process of, of mm. working with other people. And, and in that case, it was like, oh, I'm actually really interested in stuff. Like, I'm really interested in how we relate to things that we buy and why we yes. buy them and why we hold on to them and why we care and how those things um, shape our identity and how we um, express ourselves through objects. I tend to read a lot and be inspired by other people. So I came across this great... Um, it's like prose poetry collection called Hoarders um, by a poet and artist called Kate Durbin, which is it's basically just like um, sort of inspired by you know the reality TV show Hoarders. So it's yes. kind of got like sections that are like sort of verbatim style interviews with people, followed by um, just lists and lists and lists of stuff that people wow. have in their houses. Okay. Um, and it, reading that, I was like, okay, there's something within this that I'm finding really interesting about yeah. how um, there's a kind of um, merging of of the people and the objects and how the people are becoming objects because they're just in a mix this sort of like mass way of crap that they've kind of accumulated that is um, so interesting yeah so i kind of i think i think i look for sort of ways in through through research and through reading other people's work which sounds yeah. like a real sort of like i'm just nicking shit i i'm not no just, i mean god every, but, um, everyone <laughs> does i mean yeah. we've got to get our inspiration yeah. from somewhere haven't we yeah. i was i was watching the uh this show called the girl before which was on the bbc i think mm. about a year and a half ago but i only watched it recently and um it's kind of set in this house and the architect has kind of built it in a really minimalist way and so in order to move in you have to play by the rules of this sort of minimalist lifestyle and he gets you to fill out this really extensive questionnaire before you can move in and one of the questions was make a list of all the essential objects in your life and I was like god what would that list look like (laughs) It's such a, yeah, because what does essential even mean, you know, and how much of our relentless purchasing of things is actually about just sort of building an emotional wall around ourselves, which then becomes a sort of emotional fatberg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the sort of, the impulse to do it, I think I'm interested in the kind of things, again, and it all kind of comes back to the same stuff in the end. It's that like we, when we know that something's not good for us, or that we know that something is con- contributing to, to um, a system or or a pattern that we're not a fan of, but for some reason we can't help ourselves feeding into that mm. anyway. Um, I find that really interesting and interrogating it why is. why we do that. I'm fascinated by the concept of boycotting because mm. I boycott a few brands um, and all of their subsidiaries because these are very big brands yeah. um, and having conversations with people who I consider incredibly socio-politically astute and who really seem to care about things and then you're like yeah but you know like this particular brand are responsible for like some of the worst human rights abuses in the world and they're like yeah but I really I really I really enjoy that product and you know when when is the line of like 
caring about the world and oh this is now really inconvenient for me like where is that line with people and that's an interesting thing to kind of excavate isn't it and that question of responsibility and who should the kind of yeah who yeah. should take the fall um, yeah and, and that's the other thing yeah. isn't it because I do also really believe in corporate responsibility and how you know we look at the the climate change argument and how much of the responsibility is part solely you know in front of the individual when actually the corporations are running rampant and the government's yeah. not really doing anything about it yeah, and yeah. you know real change is you know at the top isn't it rather mm. than with the individual mm. so but there's, yeah there's, and then that's kind of I think where the interesting thing is with the, the storytelling aspect is when you have these massive kind of questions or these mm. big things that feel insurmountable and that I think are really difficult to talk about in a way that is nuanced and um, finding a way in that is very personal and domestic I think is the thing that I, I find the most exciting and enriching and often that that yeah, I was always told that you shouldn't kind of go into a play like knowing the answer. Like you're not there to kind of tell people exactly mm. what you think about something. Um, and I, I find that useful because often I don't really know what I think about lots of things. Um, so I find it kind of helpful to have a character or a story to kind of explore the different mm. um, possible responses that I might have to something. Um, and I think that's why, yeah, again, why theatre. I'm just, I'm just going to yeah. answer your first question. Yeah. Multiple times. <laughs> so, Too Much World at Once, which you touched on a little yes, bit, is yeah. your play. What is it about? Who are these characters that we're going to get to know? It is about a uh, teenage boy <laughs> called Noble, who on his 15th birthday finds out that he can turn into a bird. Um, and he sort of plans to use that power to reach his sister Cleo who works um, as a zoological field assistant for the British Antarctic Survey uh, on a remote island so she's kind of counting albatrosses and wow. <laughs> doing research out there um, and he's sort of preparing to, to kind of make that flight and he hides out in a barn belonging to another lad called Ellis um, who is yeah kind of <laughs> very funny openly queer uh, and they sort of strike up a bit of a friendship and then his mum is also on the scene Fiona she's also kind of trying to to look for him and hold the family together there's um, this sense for her that everything is kind of spinning away like her mm. son's gone missing her daughter's on the other side of the world their house is is falling down um, yeah so that's <laughs> that's kind of it in in a nutshell it's sort of um yeah, it's about growing up, it's about climate crisis, it's about queerness, it's about family, and it's, um, it's yeah, it sort of goes to quite like a, a epic kind of end mm. of the world scale, but also sits very much in that um, yeah, domestic family drama level as well. <laughs> and when and how did you land on kind of that theatrical aspect of him turning into a bird? That was the first thing. Okay, yeah, that's that was, where... That was where it came from. I, I, just had the question what if a boy turned into a bird that was the that was the starting point and I didn't know who he was or why it was happening or, or um, what it meant um, but I think it had always had this sense that, like I think prior to this play I'd always written things that felt quite small and felt very like you know here's a two-hander or mm. um, it's all happening in one room and I think I'd uh, what Box of Tricks gave me with the, the play box program was like this permission to, to go as big as I wanted mm. um, and I had never really thought about myself as a like a big theatrical playwright before, um, and I, I at the time I was like in my final year of university when I wrote that that first draft, yeah. and there was a lot we were reading a lot of like uh, Greek tragedy, and I think I hadn't thought about this that much, but I feel like I must have like yeah um, I don't know like <laughs> taken a lot of that in by osmosis, like a lot of um, <laughs> the chorus elements, like there's a chorus element to the play, um, and 
this sense of the, the world ending, but also that being 100% tied to like brother-sister dynamics or mother-son dynamics, like this kind of the way in which these huge feelings are like completely like compressed into these tiny houses and then explode when the pressure gets too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. And let's talk about the moment you discovered that A, this play was going to get produced and it was going to go on tour, and B, <laughs> you were going to get published. Oh, God. <laughs> I, so I did, we did the Playbox reading, that was at home in January 2020, and that was kind of the end of that programme. Mm-hmm. And then I was in London, for this just before the pandemic, um, I was working um, in London at the British Film Institute, and I got a call from Adam... He's a director, Adam Quayle. Um, I was in the stairwell. I think I was, ta- I, like, I was, I was basically, I was like an office runner. So I was doing like kind of photocopying and buying people coffee and like other fun stuff too. But there was a lot of like, run- I remember there was a lot of running up and down stairs to like take <laughs> jugs of water to rooms. Oh, uh, so I was kind of like running down some stairs. And I got this phone call and Adam was like, oh, so like too much all at once. I was like, yeah, he was like, can we do it? And I was like, yeah, go on then. Like, sure. <laughs> okay, if you want Casual. to. Casual. Fine. Great. Cool. Um, so that that was really wow. really exciting because that yeah it's my first kind of professional anything or any mm. production um, and then there was a bit of a delay then because of the, the pandemic like not soon after that like uh, the world did sort of end um, for a little bit continues to uh, <coughs> and then the tour like there was yeah there was a kind of a, a, a long couple of years then for. Um, uh, things to be sort of arranged with the tour and, and the dates and where it was going to go and all that sort of stuff and we did another R&D in, in between uh, in Scarborough and then in terms of it being published I can't remember exactly when I found out about that there was like a point where they were like oh yeah who, who would you want to publish it and I was like anyone I've got a choice what do you mean who do I want to publish um, but that that's just yeah that's mad yeah. <laughs> I feel yeah it, that feels very proper. Yeah. <laughs> like it feels like there's going to be a physical thing that I could actually hold and mm. give out to people and show them around. Um, so, yeah. So, you also write for TV. Um, and Just what started. has it been like kind of transitioning from theatre to TV and back again? And how is that feeling for you? It's really interesting. I feel like the like the TV show that I'm writing was like, um, it's children's and it's like returning series. So, it's quite established already. And it's a great... Like, I'm, it's a massive learning curve. Like, it's the first time I've done anything like this before. So there's, a, like, just learning what different words mean and what a, like, treatment is and what an episode concept is or, or um, scene by scenes and that kind of thing. There's a lot of stuff that I've not done. I'm having to kind of learn how to do as I'm doing it, um, which has felt really challenging. Um, and I think there's something... I feel like it's really exercising a different part of my brain because I don't... Because it's a series that's established, because they're not my characters... Um, I can sort of feel a little bit detached from it and kind of it feels sometimes like I'm putting a a puzzle together um, which is a really uh, refreshing and exciting way to think about writing I feel a lot less precious about it as well like I kind of feel like I got notes and I'm like cool I'll do that um, because you know this much better than I do Um, and that's not always the case like that but there's it doesn't feel like kind of (laughs) my baby is being like (laughs) I'm like cool yeah no I can see why you're saying that and this um, is someone else's baby who yeah. I just happen to be babysitting. Exactly. exactly. That's a really good way to think about it. And then there's like um, all sorts of different kind of issues that come into play that, that aren't anything to do with me. Like you'll get a note. Yeah. Like this is 100% isn't your fault. This is because something's changed in episode four. So you have to do this now. And I'm like, okay, cool. So it feels suddenly I'm like I'm part of this like much bigger 
um, machine. Um, it just sounds like a very cold way of describing it. Like it's also very fun and very lovely. Um, and very collaborative, yeah, which it kind yeah. of sounds like from the beginning, collaboration has kind of been quite crucial to everything that you've enjoyed doing it so is. far. I, like I just don't, I don't like being alone really. <laughs> when, when you're a writer, like you do a bit of being alone. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think as well, it's it's um, the speed of it is something else that is is quite different for me. Like mm. with theatre, obviously, like too much one took good few years to, to get on its feet and that was because of all sorts of reasons but even then like with theatre you do have a lot more time usually to mm. kind of really dig into things and sit with things whereas the yeah the turnaround for this is yeah. it's pretty ruthless um which is which is great because again I think it lessens my my perfectionism and my need to to get everything right first time so I'm like okay well I've got like three whacks at this and they'll yeah. tell me if you know it's, it's in everyone's interest for it to be good yes um, which I think is something that a lot of writers um can remind ourselves of a lot yeah. more is that nobody wants it to be bad like, no. so you kind of um, and trust, your collaborators yeah. are on your side exactly yeah. exactly yeah. yeah Billy Collins it's been <laughs> amazing to speak to you today <laughs> and I'm so excited to see the full production of Too Much World at Once I think it's going to be great thank you very much <laughs> cheers <laughs> so lovely talking to Billy Too Much World at Once is on tour throughout the UK right now through to the 22nd of April 2023. Head to boxertrickstheatre.co.uk for more information on the show and exactly how you can buy tickets. If you enjoyed listening, tell your friends, share on your socials and of course, subscribe. You can follow Box of Tricks on Twitter at B-O-T-T-C and on Instagram at Box of Tricks Theatre. You can find me at Carla M. Sweet on both platforms and you can follow Billy at underscore Billy Collins on both Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for joining us for the Playmakers podcast. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.